I only made it halfway through, I'm not gonna lie, but I've seen this movie like a hundred times, so. Welcome to another episode of The Mighty Rewind. This is a weekly podcast where three brothers talk about a topic and a movie from popular culture that you may or may not care about. My name's Tyler. You got Brian here. And Jeff's on the line too. That's correct. Jeff is on line two, Brian's on line one, and Tyler is not on the line. Um, this week, On the line, not online. On the line. That's right. Um, this week, we're starting our what is it what do you what are we calling this car chase films yep so in your theory or in your idea with first starting off on this topic is it movies that are just one long car chase or movies that have good car chases in them i I was thinking rather the second okay good because like this is pretty much the only movie i could think of that's like just one long car chase the whole way through um we are talking about uh mad max fury road Directed and written by George Miller with writing credits also to Brendan McCarthy and Nick Lathoris. Um, stars Charlize Theron, Nicholas Holt, Rosie Huntington, Whiteley, Zoe Kravitz, and others. Um, Jeff, why don't you give us the preamble? Tell us why you chose this movie and uh, why you wanted to talk about car chases in general. Uh, yeah. Um, when we recorded last time, uh, I went and watched uh, uh, Ant-Man before we mm. had recorded. And in the theaters, I saw a trailer for the newest, what they're advertising as the final, um, Fast and the Furious. Uh, well, it's the second to last. It's like a, they're doing like a two-part finale kind of thing is what they're saying. But of course they are. there's no way they're going to let it go. They're, they're making way too much money off that <laughs> franchise. Insane. Um, and... In the conversation, the in the car afterwards, we were talking about how ridiculous that trailer was, and uh, maybe it was still in the movie theater. <clears throat> and uh, I don't know. It seems like in today's cinema, we don't get a lot of modern car chases. It's it's kind of devolved into that, which isn't necessarily even about the driving anymore. It's always about some crazy uh, uh, escalation. Um, oh yeah, it's James Bond, but instead of gadgets, he just. They just use souped up American muscle cars. <laughs> yeah, that's a good point. Yeah, um, which is uh, which is insane. And so I was just thinking about other movies and uh, about car chases that I have enjoyed, and decided that I really wanted to watch Mad Max um, because it is the film that I think of when I think of uh, good car films. Um, yeah. So that's where I uh, that's where this all originated. What is your history with the Mad Max movies? I mean, have you seen all of them? And what like do you like all of them? Yeah, um, didn't know Mad Max existed until like I don't know senior year of high school. Um, is that when this movie came out? I can't no, remember how old you no, are. <laughs> it was years before this movie came out. Um, and. Uh, I don't know, watched all of them. I think I caught the first Mad Max on TV and then talked to talked to our dad about it and found out there was more um, and uh, watched the rest of them. 
Um, and I mean, those films start to get away from the cars as well. Um, the first film really is, is, um, I mean, they're not really, they're not, they don't start out as like car films, the right? First so one, like brief I would argue. history, brief history, George Miller director and one of my favorite, just, you know, creatives ever, which we already talked about in 3000 years of longing episode. He actually started out as a doctor, like a surgeon and like a trauma surgeon. And he had seen so much carnage from car accidents that he kind of got inspired to write this sort of story about, I don't know, the degradation of society through like, the, I don't know. I don't really understand how he was like, oh, car crashes. And like, how do I make this movie? And then he was just like, what if the world is falling apart and everything is about cars and car crashes? Um, now, that's not to say that I don't love the first one, but that movie did not do super well. It was like a really low budget one that he primarily financed himself, from my understanding. And it was essentially an indie film released almost exclusively in Australia. It did have a limited U.S. release, but it didn't catch fire. And then because it did well in Australia, they gave him a bigger budget and I think a studio backed it and he came out with the road warrior so in in australia that movie was released as mad max 2 the road warrior but when they released it in the u.s because nobody knew what mad max 1 was it was exclusively released as the road warrior and then people went and found the other ones or the first one after that um but dad our father he um art in heaven no he's not he's at his house but he always like if you talk to him about mad max he says mad max and then he calls the second one the road warrior like he doesn't call it mad max the road warrior you know what i mean like to him that movie is called the road warrior um and that's the first one he would have seen and then he went back and found the first one as well i actually really like the first one but it is very 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 slow but i think it's really good um that's the one where it's like he's just like a legitimate police officer right. and it's like not even really like the no. apocalyptic landscape yet right yeah exactly well he didn't have the budget to do it so he just filmed it in sydney australia i mean there is <laughs> apocalyptic like on the outskirts there is apocalyptic but the concept being that there are still society there are still towns that are trying to keep law and order and and a roaming it's the early days of the apocalypse essentially it just, is that first it just one. feels more modern day than it does what we see in Fury Road, 100%. where it's just straight apocalyptic. Oh, yeah. 100%. Well, so George Miller has come out and said that basically, like, he views these movies as less of, like, a continuity-based, as much as it's just, like, he is using the same character archetype and same name, and then just telling different stories. You know what I mean? Sort of like Clint Eastwood's Westerns, where he's basically playing cool the that. same it's, cowboy, it's interesting. Yeah. but they're not necessarily continuity like there's no like through line through it it's just chapters in this person you know what i mean and that honestly if you be, this movie is so easy to suspend the disbelief i feel like or like just like not even really care about it because it's, it's just, just so, so visually yeah. interesting and like yeah genuinely uh i watch this movie like once a year if not more i love this movie so much i think it's visually one of the most like incredible masterpieces like of just visual storytelling you know, like there could be like no dialogue in this movie and you would understand everything that's going on. You know what I mean? And then I like the dialogue because it's just so weird and like choppy and strange and like nobody knows how to talk to each other. And like everything they're saying is like not the right words because their society has crumbled so far that now they're just like saying random shit, you know? 
I don't know. I just, I really like this movie a lot and what he did. Brian, how do you feel about the Mad Max series as a whole? And which one's your favorite? And why is it beyond Thunderdome? (laughs) (laughs) Um, Collecting my thoughts here. This one's, the one that we're discussing today is obviously, I think, fantastic, along with both of you. Um, If you'd asked me the same question that Jeff got, which was, what is your history with the franchise? I'm pretty sure I saw the first Mad Max first. I, I'm trying to remember back now. It's been a really long time, but I seem to remember my my initial impression of Mad Max was was obviously Mel Gibson, um, and and that police station like not really feeling too apocalyptic vibe where you know I think tragedy strikes him early and then you know he kind of hits the road. Um, yeah, he essentially just goes off on like a yeah he just takes off story yeah right? yeah and. Um, we, but you know, it didn't really. My interest didn't really kick off until this movie in twenty fourteen or fifteen or what, or twenty fifteen, I think, mm-hmm. um, where I was like, man, I need like I feel like this is a franchise that I could get on board with. And then I went back and watched the rest of them and was like, oh yeah, that's the stuff. <laughs> um, but anyway, this movie stands out from the others. I I think it's it's kind of glaring when you're looking at it through a modern lens that you know he was working with more limited budget and you know in a time where um cgi wasn't what it is now and this movie really benefits from a higher budget and more cgi because they really can do the scene building around you know your focus and everything is just very rich and and it's believable that he's in this just destroyed apocalyptic world where there really are no rules beyond what the local warlord is saying needs to happen. And, you know, I I think they just really delivered on it for this film. And and it's cool that it's shot through just a one long continuous car chase that ends up going out and coming back because like you get to see a lot of, you know, what they're dealing with as far as their living conditions but you're also just watching a car chase. It, you know, it's like it's it's almost easy to forget that all we're doing is just watching cars chase each other across a bare landscape because they do such a good job of building everything up and and you know having so much characterization and stuff within the vehicles and you know every so often they stop and something big happens and then they take back off again and it's just really well done is what I'm trying to say. I you know and it just feels very rich and and uh, like they really try to do justice to the original films by just going all out for this one. And I think they, they pulled it off. Yeah. I, I, yeah, I can't speak highly enough of this movie. Um, I do quickly want to just talk about how the Mad Max films have kind of progressed in, in just like a different uh, way. So Mad Max was essentially, I mean, sorry, Mel Gibson was essentially an unknown actor at the time that they cast him. And the reason they cast him was because he was cheap. They could afford him. Their budget for the original film was $350,000. And they essentially self-funded it. Right? George Miller and his partner, uh, something Kennedy, I, I believe. Um, and they self-funded this movie. And it ended up making $350,000 budget that they did on their own. And it ended up making like eight million or almost nine million dollars at the box office back in the 70s right so it was a hit in australia it was huge and like that ratio of three hundred thousand dollar movie to eight million dollar 
box office return like that's incredible unheard of i think it actually held a record for like biggest return for any movie at, of all time at one point right then they get fury road that one also does really well and then i think this movie's box office so to now skipping ahead a little bit this movie's budget was like uh 300 million or something like that let me see um it's like 350 million where is this i just had it up i've lost it i've lost it budget 350 to 400 million and then their box office was only 415 million so if you think that no, 415 was their earnings. That's no, grossed 415. So they're net on top of 150 million, but you have to double it. So like they're they probably lost money on this on this film somehow, even though it's by far the best in the franchise and was nominated Crazy. for an Academy Award. I just I don't understand how this movie could not have had a a bigger box office return i think that it deserved a bigger box office anyway let's jump into spoilers i think we've talked about it enough i think there's not really a whole lot to spoil in this movie everybody knows what's going to happen from the get right but um full spoilers for this movie and um any other movie slash story that you could possibly think of or want not spoiled we're going to spoil your birthday gifts that's right you're all getting a ps5 like the one that i got for my brothers for my birthday thank you guys anyway um where do we want to start on this the rest of this discussion jeff i'm gonna let you kind of lead since this is your movie sure um well i basically just want to host uh, a general discussion about the film itself um so rather just break into uh notable parts of the film that we really like um and, and kind of let it guide there i mean i i don't like necessarily dissecting films uh categorically by costuming and 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 dialogue and whatnot so um yeah is that a dig at me no <laughs> because that's how what i there's, do <laughs> there's nothing wrong with enjoying films that way i just uh there's a lot of elements that i don't necessarily pick up or pay attention to what do you uh, guys think about the world building of this film like just like the word like compared to say the road warrior or thunderdome which are the first two that really have like extensive post-apocalyptic world building how do you guys feel about like this weird world with the morton joe and imperator furiosa and the war boys and and their witness me and their version of valhalla and all of that how do you guys feel about that i i'll i'll just start off by saying i i'm always fascinated in how when stories attempt to discuss a post-apocalyptic decisions, i.e., or not decisions, uh, developments in society, um, how much you see a real breakdown in language and knowledge, and I think this movie does an like an interesting take on that, right? I mean, you can picture going from society as it is today to where we are in the film, like you know, maybe a, a generation or two of just straight up, like, no, no kids are going to school. Um, you know, like society, societal structure breaks down and we see things like their religion just getting kind of twisted. Right. I mean, they're talking about Valhalla, but it doesn't really seem like they're, um, 
really discussing Norse religion or like yeah. really subscribing to what Norse religion you know traditionally is known as and so it's like some perverted twisted version that just sounds cool or something <laughs> you know like like you, you can just it, it's an interesting how you can almost like see the current conditions in the movie and almost just envision in your head the the breakdown of you know our learning and understanding and knowledge to get to that point to where they're just saying stupid crap like that and it's just kind of mildly interesting but it when you really think about it they they put a lot of thought into how much we would have regressed as a society to get to that point and i think they really do a good job of getting that across yeah i i think that they it kind of shows how religion can be used to distort and control right so like they he raises these war boys to believe that if they die for him they'll go to valhalla and like you know whatever i don't you know we don't know what the reward structure is of their religion but like they have kind of taken and bastardized some of the aspects of like yeah say that norse religion of warriors right who die in battle and they're greeted at the gates of valhalla and get to have feasts and whatever for the rest of eternity he's taken that and been like yeah so i'll just apply that to these guys and they fall for it hook line and sinker and are willing to die for it i love the idea of the witness me situation and them yelling mediocre after after characters die i was i was like is mediocre a celebration in this world but then later when nux fails to kill furiosa morton joe says mediocre so it's like okay so it doesn't mean good so that other guy when he died was that them saying <laughs> like i was like what does this mean what does mediocre mean in their world yeah, you know they're straight up rating you the quality of your death yeah exactly <laughs> i thought when re-watching it this week or this time i was like oh, i never really thought about it but they yell mediocre for that guy who jumps off of the war tank and like stabs down into the weird Volkswagen with most, spikes on it. Which is the most epic way to die. <laughs> yeah, crazy. And then they all yell, mediocre. And I was like, oh, it's a celebration. And then when <laughs> Morton Joe says it, I was like, or is it a diss? I it guess. Totally I diss. Maybe it, yeah, are you are we sure though? Because that that is starting to convince me otherwise because I that guy has such a breakdown an epic in communication. I think they hear Morton Joe say it and they don't understand what he's saying. I think that's what it oh, means. Is it's their way of twisting his like you know what I mean? Like Right, I, he's judging people, and then when somebody epic does something, they all think that he's been yeah, praising them or something. Yeah. Exactly, they take it as praise. That's what I took it as this time watching it, because I'd never really clocked that difference, you know? Yeah, I still, it still went over my head. That's hilarious. I've always felt the tone that they delivered that line meant that uh, that they also agreed that it was mediocre. But I could, I like your, I like your, I like your. Um, because uh, it sounds like they're almost angrily saying it. It sounds like they're going like mediocre. I don't know. But they but, all do this after he does it, which is like yeah, they, they honor like, him. They yeah. like lock their fingers together and put it above their head in like sort of a their version of prayer because that's what they do when they go. Sure, I mean someone still died, but I get it. I mean, I, yeah. So do you think? So you think that they, they also were not impressed? <laughs> yeah, that was my impression of it every single time I've seen I, it. No way, that death was so epic. Yeah, it seems like an epic way of doing it to me. But yeah, it's like what they're all trying to do but, is like, but they have that moment. But their objective is to stop these people, and they didn't. He he made no effort. He made no progress towards their he overall goal. A car when he does that, he takes a car out. 
Mm. Eh, whatever. Can, can I, can I just say this? Stuck on can that I just point. say this about the War Boys? I feel like if this movie came out today, we would see a bunch of like younger male teens like really embracing that War Boy style of like, you know, just chaotic stupidity. If if that's fair to say, like, like you think they would celebrate them? I think that like yeah, like young teens in America would be embracing War Boys like way harder. Like you just see when movies come out today, there's like like some kind of like mild cultural movement at, at different demographics, and like I just feel like the War Boys, you know, oh, yeah. maybe they're maybe just Rick and Morty right fans. Yeah, I was about to say. Sure, I was about to say. I'm sure people were doing stupid ass shit in the name of him yeah. to Joe after this movie came out. We just didn't see it. Probably. Probably and and stuff comes and goes quickly, but I'm just I'm just picturing it come out today, and it wouldn't shock me at all to find out that a bunch of high school age boys are painting themselves white and do, doing crazy ass shit just, just to spray painting their mouths chrome. <laughs> exactly, yeah, just to so you know stick with the trend. Fun fun fact number one here: uh, there's a, uh, a a common trend of spray painting with edible spray paint objects to make them look more realistic. And there's a bakery that sold chrome edible spray paint that people were buying after this film. And all of the comments were all Mad Max Fury Road related. Everyone was like, shiny and chrome. And, and the baker had never heard of the fucking film before. <laughs> so Wait, suddenly in Australia, uh, I don't think it, I don't think it was in Australia. It had nothing to do with Australia, but it's just super funny that like this baker just got flooded with a bunch of of monetary support and then also reviews that made everyone else like it like doubled down once people saw it they're like oh this baker loves this selling this thing that's topical about mad max the new movie and suddenly she was it's just funny um no i mean i'll double down I, I absolutely agree i mean the world building is is fun and exotic i mean anytime that you can find room in your budget to suspend someone from a rig having them shredding metal guitar um, while oh, going yeah. 60 miles an hour, it, Love it's, it. it's, it's my kind of world, man. Um, that's, that's yeah. incredible. That's, that's, that's should have won an Oscar for that scene alone. Um, so if you watch, so I don't know if you guys ever read it, I doubt it, but I read the prequel comic for this movie after seeing it. And, uh, they explain the guitar players, like that weird, like mask that he's wearing. You know what I mean? That's his dead mother's skin. <laughs> his mom died and then they skin he skinned her and he wears that as like his war costume seems like an unnecessary detail yeah right i'm like damn george miller calm down a little bit man that's too far maybe some some early 80s uh edgelord comic book stuff Um, yeah really good um yeah, I yeah, love so, the guitar on the th- on the rig. I love the tattooing their blood type on their back, um, and then Nicholas Holt being like, "That's my wheel," and him being like, "You're half dead," and he's like, "Strap the blood bag to the car," and then it just cuts, and Tom Hardy's just, and they don't strap him to the back of the car; they strap him to the front, and he's just like, uh, "It's just." Yeah, there's just something so ridiculous about the of the excess of all of it. You know what I mean? Just I like 
the fun thing about this film is is uh, one of the fun things is is the amount of things that have survived. Like the fact that they can accurately place an IV drip or a, a, a blood transfusion. What about and, the uh, the giant speakers? Yeah, exactly. Like, like do you know technically like, like how hard it would be to set that up? Ten percent of our society has survived, and it's so far it's <laughs> how to make blood transfusions and how to make some sick ass uh, mobile rigs, which I don't even know if we have that technology today. I mean, we must. What it's about? Film, but batteries they have bat cars run on yeah, batteries cars, yeah. like how are we how are we keeping these cars going yeah. also if we got gas they have electricity gas and shit why are there no houses like why is everyone living in these weird column caves in like canyons and shit you know what i mean like why are there no houses left yeah the world doesn't make sense at all but i love it but i will um, say i i part of the the beauty of this film also comes down to the execution i don't mean like obviously the execution is extremely important but also the creative decisions of like i don't know if you guys have known this i know tyler and brian know this but the audience at large um in the opening scene after mad max gets kidnapped he's in the cave and he starts to run for his freedom and and you'll notice the pacing in that scene is insane with him with like tom hardy kind of jumping around moving like way too fast and everything seems to be happening it's because george miller in the editing process, and I don't even know if it's necessarily George Miller himself, but like the editor of the film went through and deleted frames yeah, from it's that called scene. Speed ramping, and yeah, they they remove frames to make it look jarring and strange, and yeah. I love it. George Miller does that in a lot of things. Um, it's just kind of like a thing that he does, and yeah, it's really he does it throughout the whole movie. Um, first of all, so like when the war boys are spray painting their mouths, they do it so that their hands move in sort of an alien way that doesn't look right um during a lot of the action um in a way to like it just it's visually enthralling i find i think like it just looks so startling and strange that it's like i can't take my eyes away when it's happening i don't know there's a really cool way of like kind of taking you out for a second and just kind of being like whoa what's going on here right i don't know brian how do you feel about the speed ramping and the frame super cool right super cool and it's it kind of lends to the um like the, if like that part of the movie feels like a total f- like fever dream, you know that first part where he's like running through the tunnels, and so I think it totally enhances that sensation that you're just like it's so chaotic and and disorganized and just insane, and he's just this guy who's capable of you know acting violently to survive, you know that's just doing everything he can to kick and crawl, claw and get his way out of a bad situation. It's just. It, it was the perfect, you know, director decision to, you know, make that scene what it was. So moving on from that, visually, how do you guys feel about this movie? Like, just like in the visual sense, like yeah. camera work, cinematography, like how did you guys, when I'll, watching it, I know this isn't necessarily a big point for you guys, but how did you guys feel? I'll, I'll say this. I know that, um, well, I might put my foot in my mouth here. I don't have a lot of knowledge on this stuff, but my understanding is that films work on like a color palette where they'll have like, I don't know, five colors that they like mainly lean on for the way that their scenes look. And maybe you can elaborate on that a little bit more. I'm not using the right terminology and stuff, but, um, you know, this movie's choice to go with that kind of warm, like orange, like dirt, you know, it almost feels like we're on the surface of Mars the whole time and it's like to me like that allowed me to believe that we were in a like like the world had been scorched you know had been scorched by nuclear warfare or you know whatever and they're all just living in the dirt 
and like the colors that they chose just really pop and make and like send that message across that dude these are a bunch of people just fighting and kicking and scratching in the dirt together mm-hmm. yeah and just the whole movie's like that any like still frame you see of mad max he's just dirty and he's got just like a layer of dirt on him like you would look after riding around on a you know in the dunes all day you know what I mean? And he just constantly has that look on him. And I'm like, yeah, it, it, everything is scorched. There's just nothing about this place that is healthy or, you know, the way it used to be with plants. And, you know, obviously that's a really big theme of the movie is the water and plant life and stuff that, that they get in small bunches. But I think they killed that part of it. And it just totally allows you to believe yeah. like, damn, like this place is not Earth. You know what I mean? Absolutely. Absolutely. No, I mean, like the, the, the color here, I mean, they, they obviously have it in such a uh, uh, a world setting where you're going to have so much brown, so much tan, so much desert, right? But I think they did a fantastic job of introducing additional colors, right? If I compare that, I mean, the last time I talked about color on the podcast was probably when I was comparing Game of Thrones to um, the uh, Lord of the Rings TV show. And a lot of the, my complaints around the Lord of the, the, the um whatever the newest Game of Thrones TV show has been, but um, has been that it was just so uh, monochromatic. It was just like gray stone walls for nine out of 10 scenes. And uh, yeah, I I didn't enjoy it. Whereas this one, even though this one could have fallen into that same trap, they constantly infuse different colors. Not only just the chrome spray paint, not only the different variations between colors in the cars, but the flares that they have going on that is just bringing massive amounts of color variation um and and like brian was saying it's not just tan desert they they really amplify up their uh their um saturation of oranges red and reds and browns and the storm coming in like they do so much with the plot of this film to introduce as many colors as possible to keep it constantly shifting and constantly new while still always having this fucking large ass desert in the background (laughs) um and yet it doesn't feel stale um yeah incredible job for sure yeah so i quickly want to shout out the cinematographer john seal i'm just quickly looking at his um credits and it's pretty much in 1985 he first works with like a really big name director peter weir on a movie called witness and then after that he pretty much only works with some of the biggest directors of all time um barry levinson george miller on lorenzo's oil uh, Sidney Pollock, Ron Howard, John Borman, Rob Reiner, Anthony Minghella, Brad Silberling, uh, Wolfgang Peterson, Chris Columbus, Lawrence Kasdan, who directed one of the Star Wars movies, uh, James L. Brooks, and then back to George Miller. And he literally came out of retirement to work on Max, Mad Max Fury Road, and his relationship with Miller was so good that he also did the cinematography on 3,000 Years of Longing. So, um, came out of retirement for George Miller and looks like he'll probably stick around with him. Although he doesn't seem to be the, uh, cinematographer on the upcoming Furiosa prequel, which we can talk about a little later, but, um, yeah, it looks like I thought that they would have filmed this in Australia because all the other ones were, but they filmed this in Namibia and South Africa. So, so the, the reason behind that was because, uh, in 2010 they had, they were going to film in the Australian desert, but they actually, in the area that they had been permitted to, to film it, um, had insane rainfall that they had never uh-huh. had that ended up turning it into way more green and marshy than 
they could use. And so he waited. So he delayed filming for 12 months um, and went back to the set and wasn't usable. And so he then put the bullet on the production cost and shipped everything to, to Namibia. And there you go. Um, yeah, visually, this movie is absolutely stunning. I totally agree with the color palette thing, Brian, Jeff. All of your notes there were really good. I think that there's something even to the the practical effects nature of it. And, like, there's a scene where um, the uh, war party is chasing them after they first go off-road. And they're being attacked by, like, the Volkswagens with spikes and motorcycles and stuff, right? And it's it's just a wide shot of the desert from above. It's clearly, like, a helicopter shot, right? And then there's, like, explosions. It's like, you know, you see the cars in the distance and you just see explosions come onto the screen or, like, little, like, fireworks, essentially, and they, they just blow up little, like, clouds of smoke, you know, red and orange smoke against the red and orange desert. And then all of a sudden, the war party comes in on, on, from the bottom of the screen, right? And it, that's such a slow shot for such a fast movie. But it's, like, it's you don't lose anything in it, right? There's still excitement in the way that it's shot there, right? And I think that that is George Miller and the cinematographer John Seal working together to create something that in any other movie would feel like you just like you stall out for a second. You're just kind of like, Bleh, what what's going on? You know what I mean? But in that, it brings up this intensity and it's a good way of using cinematography and like creative camera work to add to the story which i just i don't know it, it, that's the one that's one of the shots that i specifically think of um whenever i think of this movie so yeah i really love the camera work there um what about uh actors obviously mel gibson is um mad max in in the original two movies um replaced here by one of brian's favorites tom hardy one of all, I think probably all of our favorites. I don't have to just limit it to Brian. I think we all like him. Um, how do you guys feel about his interpretation of the character versus like what we see from Mel Gibson in the earlier films? He was the perfect choice, I think. I mean, this is a, this might be a great segue into our topic here in a bit, but Tom Hardy does a great job in roles where and this isn't to say he can't deliver dialogue, but he does a great job in roles where he's a little bit more of the strong silent type. Um, and this is that like this is a famous role for that type of character where he's just he delivers lines when he needs to, but other than that, like his actions do the talking. And um, you know, I, I don't think they could have picked a better actor for this style yeah. where I'm just completely okay watching him not say a word during his scenes, you know. Yeah, there's a physicality to like his performance style, like that it's it's evident in his role in Dark Knight Rises and when he plays Bane, you know what I mean, where he's he's relatively quiet, but it's about this like movement and this intensity that he's able to bring to the action scenes. And I think he does that again here in this film. Um, that's really impressive that I don't think Mel Gibson necessarily has that ability. You know what I mean? Um, Jeff, how do you feel about like the difference between them or like Tom Hardy's like what he does with the character versus original character, the yeah. original recipe. Yeah. I mean, I think that uh, I, I'll agree. I, I like Tom Hardy's acting. I, I think that uh, I have seen better acting performances from Mel Gibson. Um, 
than than Hardy traditionally, but I really did enjoy what they changed about the character and what they brought to this role um, with bringing Tom Hardy in and the way that he chose to perform it. I know that that um, <clears throat> he clashed a lot with with Theron on set to the point where they both like refused to speak to each other and both publicly apologized to each other after the fact um, mm-hmm. after the film came out. Um, he also apparently clashed with George Miller a lot because he couldn't. Uh, like see his vision or whatever and then after seeing the movie he did a press briefing where he was like hey i just got to say something real quick and then just like went into like a 20 minute like george miller's a genius i don't i was wrong he was right kind of well, thing. i mean like he really apologized and you can find that online it's kind of funny and the way that they describe it's just it, a weird dude tom hardy the way that the actors describe it is i mean they were on set filming that like all of their car scenes for 130 days and so to them without really necessarily getting a script because it was all movement and not dialogue um they felt like they were filming one scene for you know basically three months where they were just sitting there or four months um where they were just every single day okay now go here get in the car and drive this direction okay and everyone's just like is this one scene like i don't really understand how this fits in the greater narrative um of of the rest of what we're telling and and he wasn't capable george miller wasn't you know capable of of really getting them to our to understand his vision right um yeah i mean they they came out they get it now they they came out to the cutting room floor with uh, i think it was for over 400 hours of footage that the editor had to turn into um uh, a cohesive plot and um editor margaret sixel i wrote that down yep and and they uh, sixel actually won the 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 oscar for best editor uh best editing performance for that for 2015 or 2016 um 480 hours of footage he came yeah. to and cut it down to 120 minutes and on top of that <laughs> it's insane and on top of that um they started to run over budget and the 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 producer of the studio turned around and was like hey you guys are not going to get additional funding so you guys need to have production officially halted by december 8th 2012 and they hadn't filmed the beginning or ending of the film yet and so he was like, oh, yeah, I guess we'll just fix it in post. And they had no ending to the film or beginning. And so when so that and that producer ended up leaving the firm in 2013 and a new head executive producer came in and uh, George Miller was like, yeah, I don't have an ending or a beginning to my film. And the guy's like, all right, I'll give you one more month of filming. And those are the only two things that you're allowed to film. Um, and uh, and we got the beginning and ending that we uh, that we got. Um but yeah, so like this film, I, I love understanding how films are made, and I think that this this film is is absolutely incredible. Um, the acting performances are second place to me, and to you know behind the action, behind all of the other things that go into making this film fantastic. It's not the dramatic performances that I watch this movie for. It's the insanity. It's the production value. It's the execution. The cinematography. Um, I like. The I, I gotta say, I I made a note to talk about the the women in the film. Mm-hmm. Furiosa, obviously, Shirley Theron knows how to deliver a performance. I think she was she was great. Aren't they making a Furiosa film? Yeah, with Anya Taylor Joy as Furiosa. Not it's like a prequel. Yeah, gotcha. I do want to okay. say I come out hard against Shirley Theron pretty much every time we talk about her. But I do think that this is 
truly a genuinely impressive acting performance. I think she, she was does, the right pick for her role too. Yeah. yeah, I think she does a really good job. Her sort of intensity that I find annoying in most films really works here, right? Hundred um, yeah, percent. I think she is intense. Also, sure. the portrayal of her as an amputee and yet still a very capable fighter, taking on Tom Hardy in that fight scene. I mean, with well, help, and but a, still being really capable with one arm, yeah. you know, in that and, scene, she doesn't have her arm on and it's totally she's still fucking kicking ass. Well, and as a female that in this post-apocalyptic world that's risen to the rank of general, you know, I think that there's probably a lot of story to tell there, which is fun. And sacrifices um, her own station in life to su- to help support other women other who women. are in yeah, trouble. It's a yeah, cool it's, a, it's a genuinely impressive like really cool strong female character that's so, not like hey look at this strong female character it's just a woman who's fucking doing her job and pushing and kicking ass and it's and to have her be an amputee i think is like a really cool it's pretty cool choice yeah, yeah. i think it's really so good putting charlize theron aside the other women in this film that stand out obviously are the like mistresses of immortan joe and i gotta say that it was like my big complaint about the film was like I recognize Rosie Huntington Whiteley. I recognize Zoe Kravitz. Uh, Zoe Kravitz. Riley Keough is in it. Yeah. It felt like they kind of had to hide them from like delivering any real lines because they didn't really have the acting chops to to carry it. You know, like the the redhead was the one that got like most of the acting, and it that's, was like that's Riley Keough. She, I believe, is okay. like Elvis Presley's granddaughter or something. Interesting. Yeah, I just... Yeah, wait. I, I Elvis, know, I was, grandchild of legendary singer Elvis Presley. Yeah, she's Lisa Marie Presley's uh, daughter. So, I don't, in peace, I, Lisa. I almost found myself wishing that they just hadn't grabbed recognizable faces for those other roles because the whole time I was just thinking like, man, it feels like they like put you guys in this, I don't know, like just because you guys had some kind of uh, connection <laughs> to the filming crew, like, and you got into the film. I don't really know what you guys are adding. So why would not I go with people faces, that have acting chops? Sorry. I think those faces are recognizable now, right? Like Rosie Huntington Whiteley at the time was trying to break into acting. She had been in Transformers and this, and then I don't think she did anything afterwards, maybe, but nothing big budget, right? Because she's not really an actor. She's, she's an, a model, right? Zoe Kravitz was super early on in her career as an actress and has definitely gotten better like her role in batman she's great in that she's good in a lot of things now but at the time she was up and coming she was trying to transition from being a model the blonde girl abby something she's an australian actress i don't think she's a very good actress she's been in a lot of stuff i've seen and she overacts in every single one of them and then riley keogh was again trying to transition from model to actress and she has done a very good job i think she's a very talented actress who is up and coming right now she's very good i like her quite a lot um see uh it comes at night she's really good in that um so i I recommend that movie for if you're looking for something that she's good in sorry i i don't disagree though brian i feel like they relegated them to just being like pretty faces that the guy wanted back you know what i mean they kind of didn't give them a lot to do um how do you guys feel about like this sort of subtle storyline of women escaping abusive relationships like it wasn't i guess not super subtle but like it almost is the plot of the movie is these women need to get away and max gets kind of brought along on their escape channel their escape story right like how do you guys feel about that in this movie did you think it was heavy-handed or like i said did you think it was subtle Uh, um extremely heavy-handed um okay (laughs) Okay. (laughs) i mean so when 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 they wrote the script george miller understood 
uh, again, another fun fact. Um, he understood that that's what he wanted to tell was the story of, of he knew that there was going to be a car chase. He knew there's going to be this society chasing these, these people who are running away from that society. What do they have? And at first in mind, it was an object, but then he realized it has to be people. Um, and that once he decided that the people were going to be women, it opened up a whole world of things that he wanted to tell, but he obviously wanted to tell it accurately, right? Having not experienced what it would like to be a woman in a damaged relationship, he brought along um, and hired as an advisor the woman that ended up writing, or uh, sorry, that was famous for writing the vagina monologues, um, oh. which is a very empowering uh, women's uh, performance. And uh, that woman coached all of the women that played the refugees, talked you know, gave them statistics about sexual assault, about why this, this role was necessary and all of these different things to help them get into the mindset of a woman who um, needs that freedom and needs that protection. Um, so I, I think it was good. I understand that uh, a lot of different people who have experienced that don't want those storylines to become super popularized because they don't want to normalize that concept. They don't want um, the idea of sexual assault or, or abuse to become a narrative device. Um, they want it to have and the, the, the real weight and gravity that it should. Um, but I think in this sense, I, I, I think it was used to good effect for this film. Hmm. That's interesting. Yeah, I'll I, just say definitely heavy handed. I mean, it was, you know, a big part of the storyline. And, you know, I kind of interestingly, I think in any post-apocalyptic storyline where society is broken down and we don't have you know, any kind of government oversight, you know, law enforcement type entities. Like, I think a storyline is going to head that way where there's bad men in the world that are trying to take what they want. And uh, oftentimes women will be at their mercy or like will be like victims of that, you know. And so in this movie, I think they're addressing something that feels very obvious for a post-apocalyptic storyline. Um, but yeah, it is it is a really heavy handed um, plot arc. Um, you know, I, I kind of wish that the, uh, I, I, I'm excited to see what they do with Furio. So I'll just say that because I was enjoying how much of a counterbalance her character was to the Immortan Joe harem, you know, like where she was showing that like women are strong and capable and resourceful and smart and they don't have to be just this like harem addition mm -hmm. for the local warlord and so i was kind of enjoying how much the furiosa character like counterbalanced that and was able to hold her own versus just being another woman i mean and shirley saren is the prettiest of every woman on that in that movie you know she's absolutely dropped it gorgeous physically even with all the grime and the shaved head and everything and she's missing arm i was like god she is so pretty. Like, yeah. She's so and, pretty. But but that part doesn't matter because, you know, it's it's what is your character yeah. made of. You're it's right? not and what she's the, about. Yeah. In the Furiosa character, like, is such a counterbalance that shows that, like, women don't just have to be victims in this post-apocalyptic world. They can actually do something, you know, to stand out or hold their own or climb a ladder or whatever you want to say. So yeah. really uh, interested yeah. to see with what they do with Anya Taylor-Joy as Furiosa, which apparently I think is filming currently or maybe just wrapped filming or something like that. Um, yeah, very interested to see. I mean, she's a very strong up-and-coming actress. Um, we've sang her praises uh, quite a lot on this podcast. Um, I'm very interested to see. I don't know that she 
would have been my choice. I think I probably would have just like DH Charlize Theron or something. I don't know because I don't know that Anya Taylor Joy has the same intensity that Charlize Theron has. You know what I mean? Like she's a not to say that she's not a talented actress. We all like her, but I just think that Charlize Theron brings something to the table that I think maybe is one of the most important factors of this character. You know, and that's just how intense she is and how yeah, I don't know, bold and strong of a personality she has, I guess. I don't know. Anyway, um, Jeff, segue us into the topic. Hop yeah. on your segue and write us in. Yeah, I'll say there's a ton of fun facts for this film, like literally too many for us to devote. Uh, so I'm, I'm not going to read all of them. Um, we covered enough. So look up some fun facts for this film. I just keep finding more and they're all incredible. Um, yeah, so the topic that I wanted to use this film to talk about was the strong silent type, the silent protagonist and see if we could come up with a better one than this film. I knew that we were all going to have strong feelings for how Tom Hardy performed in this film and see if there's anyone that we liked more. Um, so I don't imagine it to be a particularly long topic, but I'm curious. Um, do you guys think that there's anyone that's performed the strong silent type better than Tom Hardy in this film? I want you guys to go first and tell me what you think. Mostly because I looked up lists and was like, okay, I've seen most of these movies, but these yeah. are not strong characters. Yeah. Um, uh, for me... So tell me who you came up with. I would say the only person that I could say could use it to a better effect would be Clint Eastwood in The Good and the Bad and the Ugly is silent for very much of that film. And, yeah, man, a few words for sure. And I think that... In that style, Westerns are typically a little bit slower than other action films at the time. Um, it's a lot more build on suspense and tension. And I think in those cases, less is more. And The Good and Bad and the Ugly is a perfect example of that tension, of that suspense coming to fruition. And I think Clint Eastwood is also one of those characters who brings a physicality to his role specifically facial expressions obviously he's famous for the the eyebrow and um the grimace um and i think that was popularized really you know here uh in this film with this role yeah for sure um clint eastwood i think is i think i already talked about him on this podcast in this episode didn't i mention that okay good yeah he I think he's the archetype, right? Like he's what silent, strong silent type actors or characters kind of all come from. And I even think this movie, Tom Hardy probably watched a lot of those Sergio Leone, Sergio Leone uh, spaghetti westerns with Clint Eastwood to kind of like develop his interpretation of the character or maybe just kind of looked back at them in his own mind. I don't know if he rewatched them. I'm, I assume he's seen them before, but um yeah, don't disagree. Brian, what do you got? Who, who do you got? I, I jotted down Clint Eastwood, but I, I wouldn't be able to speak to a lot of his filmography. The, the other actor I wrote down was Ryan Gosling, um, which feels so weird to say because I'm, I'm realizing now how diverse he is as an actor. Yeah. Because he's got a lot of stuff across the spectrum of different, like he does the heartthrob thing, like he does the comedy thing. But, but what I'm picturing is Blade Runner. 
Mm-hmm. Like, I just don't think he talks very much in that movie. And, and I feel like I've, I saw the movie Drive and he didn't yeah. talk much in that either. He barely talks in that. He barely talks in Only God Forgives, which is the follow-up with Nicholas Winding Rifen, the director of Drive. He did another movie with him, but, which is bad, but he's barely, he's basically silent in that movie as well. But but here's the weird thing. I don't, I can't picture him sub, subbing out Tom Hardy in this film. Like, I just think he's too, like, pretty no. to be able to do the Mad Max version. No, I would like, be upset if it was you, Ryan Gosling. Yeah, you talked about Tom Hardy's physicality. Yeah, like, I just don't think right. t- Ryan Gosling offers a lot of that. But at the same time, it's so funny to say that because he has so many similar films where he doesn't talk very much. Um, yeah, but he's not rough. Know. You know what I mean? I mean? Like he's. Not, I think Ryan Gosling could be a character in this universe, right? But I also think Ryan Gosling's physicality, like the way that he moves, he comes from a dance background, so he's got like a gracefulness to his movement that's not the same way that Tom Hardy kind of has like a utilitarianism almost. Like it's like there's no wasted movement in Tom Hardy's performance. You know what I mean? Like it's all to the point. It, it it has a purpose, right? Like Gosling almost has like, yeah, like a gracefulness, like a flourish to the way that he moves through a scene that I think, I don't know. Takes away from physicality for sure. Or like it just is, it's a different physicality. You know what I mean? Like his characters all are a little bit smooth, even when they're doing pratfalls and stuff. Like in the, the uh, not the other guys, the, what's the one that he's in with Russell Crowe? Something guys. Oh, nice uh, guys. The nice guys. Yeah. In that one, like even when he's falling, it's like exaggerated. You know what I mean? And like, it's different. Like Tom Hardy, that's not how Tom Hardy moves. You know what I mean? So I think Tom Hardy was definitely the right choice, but Gosling does play the strong silent type. And then I think in recent years, I have a different respect for Ryan Gosling where I didn't like him because he was like a romantic comedy pretty boy dude he totally then, yeah yeah he's definitely Sorry. won me over in recent years and i yeah. I, I really like him a lot now there's, and there's totally a, to an underlying in. element to him of frat guy you just want to punch in the face you know he's just too handsome yeah just too blonde yeah um, he's too good looking and uh but but at the same time yeah like i the more i think about his filmography the more i realize like man he actually is pretty good you know yeah. he's a he's an actor that offers a lot yeah i really like him a lot um but yeah he is really silent i kind of went in a different way i i genuinely only thought of act like characters that didn't that don't talk. So I had two written down. I have a movie called Mute, which was on, I think Netflix came out and I think you can still watch it. And I think Paul Rudd's in it. And uh, the main character is Alexander Skateboard, Skarsgård. Um, and he literally can't talk. The, the character like has no voice. And so like that's, and it's like a sort of sci-fi Blade Runner type world that they live in. Um, and, it was okay. It's not the best movie I've ever seen, but it was fine. And then the other one I wrote down was The Shape of Water. And those are literally the only two movies I could think of where the main character doesn't talk. And that's because in both of them, they're inable, incapable of speaking. <laughs> so I think I've misunderstood the uh, pr- the prompt here. Well, I've got uh, two more. Okay. Let's see. Uh, how about the movie that we reviewed a couple months back, The Northman? Yeah, he's, I mean, uh, uh, well, there's Alexander Skarsgård again. Um, And he brings a fuck ton of physicality to that role. Uh, Yeah. Dude is absolutely uh, daunting. He honestly plays a lot of strong silent types. And you know what? That movie brings up another one where the guy can't talk, starring a different uh, Nordic, I guess, or Scandinavian actor. Yeah. 
Valhalla Rising, which actually is Nicholas Winding Rifen again as the director on that one, I think. Um, so talk about just can't escape him. But um, what's the guy who played Le Chief in James Bond that we really like? Uh, Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen. Mads Mikkelsen. Yeah, he plays a Viking who barely talks throughout it, and mm. they like discover America, and then everyone goes mad. I don't know. It's really weird, really cool, creepy yeah. movie that I don't know if it's good, but I like it. But yeah, uh, the Norseman is a good one. Another strong, silent type rather than that, like a mute actor. <laughs> that same actor is also in our our father's favorite movie, Tarzan, from like 2016, 2017. Strong, silent type. Yeah, strong, it almost makes type. me wonder if he's because all the movies that <laughs> we're talking speaking. about him, he doesn't speak. Yeah. Well, he is Scandinavian, so he does have like maybe he has trouble getting rid of that accent or something. I don't know. I'm surprised, Tyler, that you. I thought for sure you were going to bring up the Matrix. I thought for sure you were going to bring up Keanu Reeves in either The Matrix or John Wick. John Wick is a good one because he barely talks. And when he does, it's all monosyllabic words. (laughs) Yeah, I need. I'm thinking I'm back. I need a gun. Yeah, Yeah, I think I'm back. I'm thinking I'm back. Yeah, that's I just rewatched all of those. I love those movies. I'm so excited for <laughs> yeah, their new good. one to come out. They're I think, so dumb. But I, love I think that the majorities of the film, like most of the fight scene, whenever they continue to introduce more and more people, like it degrades in quality. But each film does have redeeming fight scenes. Like I think it's oh, the yeah. beginning of the third one where he fights a dude in the library and he has to stay quiet. So he's killing him with books. Oh, and yeah. It's just... <laughs> Punching books in the throats. It's insane. That that whole fight scene is not the movie we're talking about or the topic, but that whole fight scene just keeps going into into the the point where they enter, they get into a storefront and it's just a knife store. And so they're all just like breaking glass and grabbing knives and stabbing each other. And he's like throwing knives. Yeah, I was like, this is the best thing I've ever seen in my life. (laughs) I love that scene. The motorcycle chase scene, I could lose. Like that movie could be a half hour shorter, cut a bunch of the. I love that motorcycle chase. Scene. I think it's so dumb. cool. <laughs> He's riding a horse, sword fighting dudes on motorcycles. Are you kidding me? That's so awesome. <laughs> yeah. All right. I love that movie. Um, so yeah, that's that's the topic. Um I don't know if the the I don't, I'm I'm gonna go out and say I don't think it's the the strong silent type has been used as efficiently. Um as Mad Max, I think the good and the bad and the ugly is up there with excellent efficiency, but they're both just top tier. Uh, there was one more thing I wanted to say about this movie, and that's that nothing is wasted in it. And by that, I mean, like, every action has a purpose in the movie. Like, when he grabs the water hose and he's shoving it in his face and we watch him just chugging water as he just, like, it just gets leaked all over the ground and shit. That serves the purpose to wake up Nicholas Holt's character, who I believe has a name, but I don't know it. Nux, maybe? Um, like, everything that he does... Every movement, every action, every bump in the road, it serves a purpose and is not lost on the movie. You know what I mean? I think that it's like a very efficient use of its 120 minutes, which typically I would complain about a 120 minute movie, but there's no time wasted. There's nothing lost. There's no slow. There's no release you ever get. There's no slow points. It just, it keeps going. And I just, I really respect their ability to do that. But I guess if you have almost 500 hours of footage uh you can make any movie that fast so maybe that's just a symptom of how miller directs his films i don't know any other final thoughts before we move on to what we've been reading watching and listening to Uh, i'm gonna say one more fun fact because i just read this and it's blown my mind the night scenes in this film 
were filmed in daylight. They were mm-hmm. deliberately overexposed, color manipulated, and then in most shots, the sky was digitally replaced with more detailed or interesting skies. Yeah. It's That's insane. true in a lot of movies. They, Take notes. They, they call it day Take for notes, night. Game of Thrones. <laughs> yeah, they specifically wanted you, you to see everything. Um, yeah, the subtle world building in those scenes where they're going through like the swampland and there's like the people on like the weird stilts, stilts. covered in like m- grass or whatever they're wearing, like wearing grass yeah. cloaks. That like it's just like what the fuck are they? What's their life? What is going on there? You know, just so much of this film. Like, I, I there's a strange screenshot. There's an image of my head of like the, the the heat waves rolling over the desert as the cars are approaching, and just mm-hmm. in the distance you see the people who are swinging back and forth on the poles suspended yeah. from the cars, mm-hmm. and I'm like the safety regulations that have to be put in place in order to achieve that shot and knowing that it's all practical effects i'm like that's so fucked up Um, i do love nicholas holt's line in that moment where he's like look at him so shiny so chrome (laughs) because it's like the weird shininess of the heat waves you know what i mean bouncing off the cars yeah it's just this movie's awesome i i can't sing its praises enough we could have talked about this movie for like two hours and it wouldn't have been enough let's move forward what did you guys do this uh last two weeks since we were last recorded um brian you start um nothing new from me harry uh hogwarts legacy and um on the show and a little bit of always sunny in philadelphia uh oh uh we started hunter season two Mm. a couple episodes in on that i think i think jeff mentioned a while back that the reveal at the end of season one kind of made it a weird directorial choice to like back up to season like in season two to like back up and continue to explore Al Pacino's character. I just feel like I got everything I needed out of that character and I'm kind of over his storyline and like, he's just still a big focus. Like we're like bouncing between. Yeah. It tells the, two the prequel mains and, and the sequel at the same time is a strange yeah. choice. And I'm just not getting anything out of his parts. And it's frustrating because Al Pacino carried season one. He was great. And and so now I'm like, I'm, I've am i completely moved on from you. And I'm still getting you in, in big quantities. And it's not doing anything for me. So, um, yeah, I think we're going to try to finish it here at some point. But it's definitely, I think, I'm, I'm guessing my wife feels the same way. And I, it's definitely slowed us down a little bit. Whereas season one, we couldn't get enough. This season, we're... We're kind of slower down, although I, I am seeing this as the, the the last season, right? They're only That's doing right. a two-season yeah. thing. That's it. Okay. Yeah. So still a good show. I mean, still a lot to it. I really, really enjoy um, whatever uh, Ted Mosby's name is. Uh, Josh Radner. Josh Radner. Yeah, I really enjoy his character, man. He He's funny. Um Anyway, and also I really like when see. he's yelling at the Frenchman about being sexy and hot and how women don't like that. <laughs> yeah. Or when he's like, he's like crying during the interview and he's like, my fans, I do it for my fans. And then like they turn off the camera and he's like totally like fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's why we do it. And then they're like, you have that's cocaine what... on your nose. <laughs> yeah. Um, anyway, so it's still, still a good show. Totally worth watching. But uh, I definitely uh, am picking up on your point about their directorial choice for season two to still feature Al Pacino heavily was kind of weird to me. And um, he's their big, I mean, he's the biggest actor in the show, right? Sure. Besides him, you have Josh Radner and Logan Lerman and, and uh, yeah, Holly I'm Hunter is actually enjoying Logan Lerman more. He's more of a physical character. He's a little bit more like, you know, um, intriguing this year. He's not that like babe in the woods type, you know, that he was in season one where he was just kind of like, you know, 
what do I do? What do I do? Oh my God, we're killing people. This season, he's like, I'm going to freaking kill some people. And I'm like, there we go. Like this kid's grown up. And so I'm, I'm enjoying him more. I kind of wish that they had just ran with that. I will say Logan Lerman has, I'm no reason to respect him as much as I do, but I really like him. I don't like, there's just something charming about him on screen, but he's exclusively in bad movies. <laughs> and like, this is, I don't even really like this show. But I still like him in it. I don't know what it is about him, but there's just like he has a quality that I'm like, yeah, he's infinitely watchable. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know what it is about him. Um, I went, I went, you know what I did do? I watched the the Percy Jackson movies. I watched both of them. <laughs> Speaking of Logan Lerman, not because of him, but because the new movie or the new show is coming out. And I was like, I didn't read these books. I kind of want to know what these movies are. Like, what is going on with these movies? And I don't remember them. And then I watched it and I was like, oh, yeah, these are bad. These are really bad movies. I don't like these. Um, yeah, they only serve to introduce the world to Alexandra Daddario. That's true. Yeah. that's uh, She is in both of them. Um, for that alone, instant classics. Oscars. Oscars for everyone. Yeah. Um, I that's it really though. I haven't really watched a lot else. Um, I feel like I watched some documentaries. I watched like one or two episodes of Doctor Who for some reason. Just like threw them on and like David Tennant Doctor Who. So I went back like ten years to watch some episodes of like some that I just remembered and was like, oh, I like those episodes. Um, that's pretty much it. I have not, you know. Got the six-month-old at home or seven-month-old or however old he is at this point, and uh, he takes up most of my time and trying to limit screen time with him. So, um, you know, struggling to find time to step away to watch anything. Did not get to go see Ant-Man still. Uh, as the longest uh, Marvel movie has been in theaters that I haven't seen it, but it's getting really bad reviews, which is making it really hard for me to try to find time to step yeah. away to find to see it. So, yep. Jeff, do you want to do like a non-spoiler whether you liked it or not? I know you saw it. I mean, it could have been better. Um, I wish that they had um, a better script for Kang. I think that uh, Jonathan Majors did a great acting performance, but I think that the story direction could have been better. Um, They didn't do enough to establish him as an imposing figure to make people want to come out and see him in his next performance in that role um which is a shame i think the movie was okay um there was elements that were funny um but by and large um the marvel formula i think kind of failed here yeah which one has more reach rewatchability this or um dr strange multiverse of madness i would probably watch dr strange given that you get uh little x-men taste black bolt fucking x-men yeah fucking john krasinski as the fantastic i mean yeah mr fantastic yeah i think that just for the weirdness of dr strange like and sam raimi's weird whip pans and zoom crash zooms and everything that he does it makes it probably more visually interesting i don't think peyton reed is a bad director i haven't again i haven't seen it but i just don't know why we've given him like the ant-man movies have been consistently like the my least favorite Marvel movies, all three of them, or the first two at least. And I don't understand why Peyton Reed is still directing them at this point. It doesn't really make sense to me. Um, but yeah. Uh, are we losing Jeff? Oh, he's got to let some cats in or out of his room. I'm going to have to edit this. 
Jeff, it's your turn to tell us <laughs> what you've watched, read, or listened to. Yep. Um, so I don't have much. Honestly, I haven't been watching too much TV. Uh, <clears throat> I think since the last time we spoke, I don't know, We uh, Eric and I watched uh, an, an, uh Netflix anime called uh, Valhalla. Uh, no. So Ragnarok, record of Ragnarok, um, in which and I've talked about this on the on the podcast before, but essentially it's a contest. The gods um, wanted to end humanity and the Valkyries who are created to protect humanity, essentially convince the gods to accept a uh, tournament of champions in which she, the leader of the Valkyries, selects humans from human history to fight gods. And the humans are empowered by the spirits of the sister Valkyries who are transformed into weapons. Um, and uh, fun matchups. This season has Jack the Ripper going up against Hercules and uh, 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 the world's greatest sumo wrestler going up against uh, Shiva, the Indian god of destruction. Um, some fun stuff. Uh, I enjoy it. My roommate enjoys it. Um, yeah. Yeah. Other than that, uh, reading a lot of comics, reading a lot of books. I, I finally got my hands on uh, Brandon Sanderson's newest novel, um, Our Lord and Savior, uh, which is uh, Emerald Tress of the Emerald Sea, um, which is a whole new planet, a whole new magic system, a whole, whole lot of fun goodies there. I'm about a third of the way through it now. Um, and then on top of that, uh, picked up a new subscription um, to Marvel Unlimited. Uh I like reading comics and a lot of people like to turn to me, specifically my roommate, to ask me different questions about character histories. And he's getting to the point now where he's asking me questions about things I don't know. Um, and so I picked up a Marvel Unlimited subscription to go back and read through some fun events. Um, and Tyler, let me know if you want the login details, because there's a ton of different stuff you can go back and oh, read. Boy, I have so little time for comics lately. I have like a stack of stuff that I haven't read. Um, but maybe, maybe I'll just pile up some more. Why not? Otherwise, um, I'm going to pick my movie for next week. It's my turn, finally. I haven't picked a movie in forever. Can't even remember the last time I picked a movie. Why don't you just uh, do it then? I'm going to. I'm picking a movie with a car chase I think about all the time. <clears throat> We're watching Michael Bay's The Rock with Nicolas Cage and Sean Connery. Yeah. Great car chase through San Francisco. That came up at work uh that movie yeah it should I, I was talking about car chases and someone was like oh the rock and i was like yeah okay <laughs> sure it just it's just really excessive and like a hummer just like driving like crushing cars like it's a tank it's awesome <laughs> it's so stupid this is the uh the james bond film right yeah that's right it's the james bond sequel right that's right um cool all right well Join us next week or in two weeks or three weeks, whenever we get around to it. <laughs> and uh, we'll be talking about The Rock. Bye, everyone. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys.